listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hi, we're the Petro family. I'm Jen. Paul. I'm James. Sam. I'm Nina. Today's reading is Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upstri- upright of them is a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the, mouth, the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him. Until he pleases my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. This is God's word. Man, I'm enjoying a quiet moment sitting on the couch at home, uh, more or less alone. Our daughter's playing in the playroom. My wife's out running errands, and I hear the back door open, and and a voice shouts from the garage, Pastor Joey. It's my wife. She's back. And she only ever calls me that when she wants me to do something she knows I don't want to do. Pastor Joey, one of your congregants needs help. Come bring the, gro- the groceries in. 
I'm like, all right, all right. So I go out and I grab the bags of groceries and uh, pick up one of the bags, and it's this massive, bulging bag that is about to burst. And I look inside, and I'm like, why are there six tubs of peanut butter in this one bag? And my wife, Jenna, she goes, it, look, I know, but this is what happens after the shelves have been empty for so long. You find peanut butter, you buy peanut butter. Have any of you done that? <laughs> toilet paper? Come on, I know who has the mountain of toilet paper in their basement, so raise your hand. Yeah, right. It, it, that, that feeling of going, going to the store and just like, it's empty. The shelves are empty. There isn't, what we need isn't there. It's, it's, oh, it's frustrating. It's overwhelming. It's infuriating. It's tiring. I'm just over it. But when I think about the state of, well, not just the grocery stores, but even my own soul in all of this that's happened over the last couple months, that, that same word keeps coming back to mind. Empty. I just feel empty. There's a pandemic and racial and social unrest, economic stress, massive wildfires, online school, and an upcoming contentious election. Does anyone else feel empty? Well, we've been studying through Micah for the last, oh, 10 weeks or so, and with all of us feeling off balance, I'm glad we've been spending this time together. It's been tough to wrestle through some of what he said in these first six chapters, but as we're getting down to the last two weeks of this study, looking now, uh, today, and next week at chapter seven, uh, Micah starts to get personal with us. Right? His life has seen more than its share of difficulty. I mean, can you imagine living in a time when you never know when the next occupying army is going to come through and beat your door down? Not to mention this is a guy who has been fairly contentious with the religious and political and social leaders and elite. I mean, that's not generally a recipe for ease and comfort in life. Plus, he's a preacher who makes his living speaking and no one wants to hear his message. So I doubt he's doing so well on his own. And couple that with the economic uncertainty as the country is continually bled dry by the various armies that are around them and opposing forces. I mean, I think it's safe to say what felt like a land of plenty is now a land that feels plenty empty. Which is exactly how he describes the state of his soul in verse 1. Just empty. Like a, like a field after harvest. And maybe that's where some of you are today, just feeling empty. Empty, maybe tempted to give in to despair on the one hand, or the version of despair that doesn't look like despair. It's the, it's the version that says, ah, just chuck it all. Let's go do whatever we want. Nothing matters anyway. Somehow, Micah was able to live and preach and minister for at least 20-odd years, at minimum, probably about twice that, without giving in to despair or overreacting and saying, just whatever. I think you, you got to wonder why, how, how? I've been wondering that throughout this whole series, and today we get to find out as we jump into Micah chapter 7. 
I mean, all the things that we have going on in our world in the last few months and all the things that are going to come that we don't even know about yet. I mean, I want you, I want me to have the same strength of hope and peace that Micah exhibits here. Just kind of wonder how he did it. What did Micah do that gave him a strength of faith and a solidity within all of the stuff that he saw and preached against and lived through where he didn't despair on the one hand or overreact and take matters into his own hand on the other? How how did Micah refrain from giving in despair, questioning God, and throwing in the towel? There's a one-word answer. Lament. Now, if you're not familiar with lament, uh, lament is an expression of sorrow, uh, but not the kind of sorrow that just gives up and says, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's the kind of sorrow that also has a backbone of hope running all the way through it. Uh, it's the kind of sorrow that says, like, this hurts, yes, because it's bad. And this, these feelings are true and real and should be felt, but... At the same time, I know that God is going to do something, even in the midst of all this sorrow. Somehow, some way, someday, God is going to do something. See, lament is sorrow uh, with a backbone of hope. What we're studying this morning is one big lament. In both of its parts, half of it is one big sad song of sorrow. Micah expresses his anguish over a world gone mad, the state of the world that he lives in. But the other half is all about hope. It's hope in the character and promises of the God who made a covenant with his people, with Israel. See, for, Mo, for, for Micah to refuse to give in to despair required a much, more, a much healthier, a much more proactive behavior which is lament, sorrow with a backbone of hope. So we're going to jump into Micah chapter 7. We're going to move through verses 1 through 17 together this morning. And as we do so, two main categories, the two parts of lament, sorrow and hope. We see Micah's sorrow, see Micah's hope. So if you haven't yet, open up your Bible, turn to Micah 7. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to jump in. And uh, while you're Googling that or you're finding your way there, I, I know if you're joining us for the first time in this series or maybe you've had a hard time kind of wrapping your mind around where Micah fits in this whole Bible story thing, um, let me recap. So Micah lived about 750 years before Jesus, back before there was a, a church like this, uh, back when God had a special relationship with a group of people called the Jews, the nation of Israel. Right? And there's a whole big story there, but basically the nation has fallen apart morally and spiritually. And Micah is one of those guys called prophets. Uh, the prophets who God sent to wake them up, show them what they were doing wrong. And he's been doing that for the last six chapters, but when we get to chapter seven, he gets personal and he begins this chapter basically saying, my soul is empty. He's like, I just feel empty like the fields after a harvest. There's nothing there. He's emotionally exhausted, you can read from verse 1. You find out why. Well, he 
outlines his sorrow. He tells us why in verses 2 through 6. And let me paraphrase this maybe in the way that, that we might say it today. Right? Verse 2, he, he's saying the, that the world has become a place where he can't, I can't find anyone I can trust. It seems like there are no good people left, no one left who wants to follow God and do what he says, right? Everyone's just looking out for number one, trying to get the most out of each other that they can. No one's living humbly or justly or righteously anymore. That's verse two, and he goes on, he says, people are getting so good at being bad. Seriously, it's like you can take college classes for this now on how to get away with evil, and the people in charge have figured out how to use their power just to preserve their positions and get what they want. The rich are able to just whisper to their underlings what they want, and they go off and bribe a judge, pay off an official, and the next thing you know, the big guy wins and the little guy gets crushed again every time. There's no justice. That's all in verse 3. And he says, I've tried going to some of these guys and saying, don't you care about righteousness? Don't you care about justice? And, and I found them about as comforting as a good thorn bush. Don't go looking to them for hugs. That's verse 4. And he goes on, he says, everyone's selfishness and self-centeredness has gotten so bad that you can't trust the people who live around you. Neighbors are spying on neighbors, gossiping about each other to each other. That intricate web of, have you heard what so-and-so is doing? And it just pings all over the neighborhood. He says, even my friends are talking about me to my other friends, so I don't know what I can say and to whom and who I can trust with what. People are so focused on impressing and controlling each other that no one cares about justice and righteousness and humility. He says, it's so bad now, I'm telling people, look, just don't trust anyone. That's the safe way to go. Don't trust, especially the people you live with, the, you know, your closest companions, be careful what you say to your spouse. You might use it against you one of these days. Be careful what you do in front of your kids. They already think you're an idiot. And they're going to try to get out of you whatever they can. I mean, all that's in verses 5 and 6. And his conclusion from it all, as he kind of describes the world he's seeing around himself, is either God has got to fix it, or he's got to just wipe the slate clean and start over. He says that right in the middle of his litany of sorrows in verse 4, the second half of verse 4. It reads, the day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now your confusion is at hand. And the day of your watchmen, there was this uh, sense at this time that the prophets, uh, guys like Micah and Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and, and others, they served as watchmen. That's how they saw their role. Watchmen for the people of Israel, working like, like guards who would patrol a wall and watch out for threats from outside the city. That's how the prophets saw themselves. They were watchmen, moral and religious guards, you know, watching out for threats to the nation's relationship with God. And he says, the day of the watchmen is here. The day that the men on the walls begin shouting, 
There's threats, we see them, it's coming, captivity is coming, destruction is coming, confusion is coming. The day of your watchmen, pretty much all commentators agree, it means this is the, the day of captivity, the day of exile, the day that the nation is finally and fully overthrown. The day of disaster. It's the day when nothing can ever be again what it was before. The end of Israel. So Micah's got some stuff that he's sad about, right? And it's legit stuff. He, he, I mean, this is, these, these are real injustices, calamities. This is some real sorrow that he's facing down. But the, the song, the lament, doesn't end after, you know, at verse 6 with just the sorrow. Uh, like all good proactive laments, it has the backbone of hope. This is why Micah isn't overwhelmed by just the sorrow, because the sorrow is coupled with hope. Look at verse 7. Look at his hope. Verse 7, he says, but as for me, right, he's gone through this list of this is going on in the world, and this is going on, and this, and this, and this, but as for me, it says, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And as much as the, the first half of the chapter is a litany of sorrows, the second half of the chapter is a litany of hopes. Because Micah's hope is in God, and because his hope is in God and the character of God and the promises of God, he knows that that hope will be fulfilled at some point in the future in national promises, right? Because God has made this covenant relationship with the, the nation of Israel. It's a hope that is guaranteed because of who God is. He spells out some of those hopes in verses 8 through 17, I'm just going to go through them quickly, verses 8, 9, 10, he says, Jerusalem will come back to prominence again. Jerusalem will be able to shout, when I fall, I shall rise, triumphantly, because that's what God has promised. And in verses 11, 12, 13, the borders of Israel will expand, and Israel will finally fulfill her role mediating God's rule to the world. It's what God has promised it will happen. And in response to that, verse 14, Micah cries out to God, the shepherd. He says, shepherd your people. We're dwelling alone with no one to care for us. Shepherd us. Let us graze in these places of blessing as you used to in the days of old. And God responds in verses 15, 16, 17. He says, oh, I've shown up before when you needed me. And watch. I'm about to do something you've never seen before. Just you wait. See, Micah's lament, like all good laments, has both real, true sorrow, but not sorrow alone. It also has this backbone of hope, but also not hope alone. Notice the hope doesn't negate the sorrow both are required for it to be a healthy lament, not just skipping over the bad and saying, well, with God, you know, what is that even that? What, that doesn't mean anything. It's just, let's just hope that both are held together in this lament as Micah brings together both sorrow and hope, hope in Yahweh, hope in the God who made 
this covenant with his people, the God who has promised to hear them in their trouble, to rescue them in their need, to bless them, to keep them safe. Hope in the faithful, steadfast, loving God who chose them. Hope and sorrow together form lament. And both elements are needed because only lament can drive out and keep us from despair. Now, I know some of you have been waiting the last 20 minutes for me to tell you what the key idea for the morning is because you've got your sermon journals, you've got your notes along, you've made space, and you're ready for it. Here it is. The key idea for this morning is that only lament can drive out despair. We'll put it up on the screen so that you have some time to write it down. Only lament can drive out despair. Only lament can keep us from giving into the despair that says it's as bad as it can get. It's never been worse. No one can make it better. See, that, that's the despair perspective. The lament perspective says, is, is honest about sorrow and hope. Says, yes, it's bad, but the world is never so bad that God can't do something. And if he's promised that there are things he's going to do, we know we can depend on his promises. See, I'm glad we're studying this passage together in this season because I think for many of us, Micah's lament has a lot to teach us. In 21st century Indianapolis, in a world that feels like it has gone mad with everything happening. Lament can drive out despair. And as we are all being tempted to despair or just resignation because of, the, like we said, a pandemic and social and racial unrest and economic stress and massive wildfires and the election and online schooling and, and all of that, as, as your pastor, I want you to be able to face all of that without giving in to despair or being paralyzed with the question of, where is God in all of this? What is he doing? And without saying, ah, chuck it all, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Learning to lament doesn't necessarily, it doesn't make it less hard, nor does it prevent us from asking questions like, where is God? What is God doing in all of this? But learning to lament means we're not paralyzed by it. We're not overcome with despair. We can live like Micah did, feeling essentially empty, as he describes in verse 1, and yet still express our sorrow and hold on to our hope. So let's spend the, the rest of the time we have together just talking about how we do these two sides of lament. How do we express our sorrow and secure our hope, hold on to hope? First, let's talk about expressing sorrow. Expressing sorrow, you, know, you saw how Micah expressed his, faced the world around him, owned up to what wasn't right, expressed the specific ways that the people of God had failed to live up to what God had called them to, to all of the stipulations of the covenant they were in, uh, they failed to live up to justice and righteousness and humility. And all of Micah's sorrows were national 
sorrows, right? Because God had made a covenant agreement with the, the nation, the people as a whole. And that's a, that's a perspective that we are sometimes tempted to borrow for ourselves. But when we borrow that perspective, we also borrow sorrow that isn't ours. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, um, in, in talking with different Christians across the whole range of ages that we have here at Faith, um, I've noticed Christians of different ages tend to think about our country, the, the U.S., the country we live in, in very different ways. There's a perspective shift happening between younger and older Christians and how they view God's role in America's past and present and, and future. And by the way, this is all within the realm of evangelical Christianity. This isn't like a liberal conservative thing. This is all people that you know, are part of faith. Here's the perspective shift that, that's happening. So uh, on the whole, older Christians, and now this perspective is there across all ages, but in general, older Christians tend to view America like uh, Israel. Like we're an Israel that has walked away from God and needs to be called back, back to its history and its legacy as a Christian nation. And this perspective tends to think of the U.S. as having a special relationship with God, and if we could call people back, if the church could call people back individually and also leverage political power to, to bring people back, we could you know, restore our Christian identity and, uh, and God would bless us again. Now, younger Christians, on the other hand, tend to, tend to view America very differently, um, seeing the U.S. as more like Babylon, uh, more like a, a pagan nation that, like any other pagan nation, is a mixture of good and bad, of human depravity and common grace, right? Capable of, of reaching the heights of compassion and virtue and just as capable of plumbing the depths of oppression and evil and wickedness. So on this side of that sort of thinking, that, that perspective tends to think that, well, no, there is no special relationship between God and our country. And so the church is just responsible to live faithfully without compromise within a pagan America that is indifferent to or antagonistic toward the church, whatever the circumstances are. Now, I, I bring that up because, you know, I don't know where, specifically where you may be on that spectrum, but I bring it up because one of my fears for us as a congregation, for Faith Church, is that some of us, maybe many of us, are borrowing sorrow from unfulfilled promises that weren't ours to claim in the first place. See, there, there's a difference in these sorrows. There's a difference between the sorrow for a covenant nation gone bad and the sorrow that comes from living within a pagan nation. One is the sorrow that you feel with a child that you have raised in the faith who has professed the name of Jesus, but as they grow up, eventually walks away from it and says, I want nothing to do with that. And you want to call them back. The other is a sorrow that you feel when you see somebody who has never known Jesus and you're watching them just trying to get what they think will make them happy and you're looking at them going, you're killing yourself and you don't even know it. These are two different kinds of sorrow and we 
we don't need to borrow extra sorrow from thinking of the U.S. as a, a nation in a special relationship with God that has walked away from him. We'd be much healthier if we lived, I think, under the honest sorrow that we're living in a country that has never really known God. When Micah expressed his sorrow, it was national. It had to do with Israel because that was the covenant community. When we express our sorrow, it's not national, it's kingdom-oriented because we're living within a different covenant community. So we have to express our sorrow for where, we're, where we actually are and then also secure our hope in the promises that are actually made to us. Right? Mike is looking for future national deliverance. We're looking for future kingdom deliverance. I was sitting in my high school sophomore government class up front on the right-hand side when I, I heard our teacher say something that shocked me so deeply I still remember exactly how he put it held up a hand, and started ticking off countries. He said, Egypt, the Roman Empire, Greece, Constantinople, the Ottoman Empire. Every great nation in the history of the world eventually runs out of steam, peters out, dwindles, and dies. America will be no different. And it, it literally rocked me because that was, I mean, you remember the moment you first realized your parents won't live forever? That was what I felt there about the place that I lived. Like, hold on here. How can a nation that is so powerful, so strong, so self-evidently blessed and favored by God ever come to an end? It doesn't make sense. Well, then you can... Fast forward for me to a seminary, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, whatever, I'm in a class uh, where we're going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm sitting in the back in the middle because I'm smarter at this point, and the teacher is leading us through Matthew. He gets to chapter 16, and he gets to that part where Jesus tells Peter, like, hey, I am going to build my church, and not even hell itself will be able to stop it. And like a lightning bolt, it hits me. There is only one human society or organization, or institution that will last forever. It's the church. That how could something so weak, so powerless, and so overrun by human selfishness ever last forever? It all comes down to the promises of God. See, we have to have our hope secure in the promises actually made to us or we'll, we'll be drawn to despair when God doesn't fulfill the promises he never made to us. So what, what promises are you holding on to? There are great ones all throughout this book, but not all of them apply to us. You're familiar with some of the great ones. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a beautiful promise, but it's not for us. It's for Israel. That one doesn't apply. Another one, for I know the plans I have for you. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Boy, it's a beautiful promise. I wish it were for us, but it's not. It's for high school graduates. <laughs> no, it's for Israel. It's not for us. That one doesn't apply to us. It's for a people in exile. But we serve the God whose character led him to make those promises. We serve a God who keeps those kinds of promises, and he has made specific promises to the church. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That one's for us. That one's for us. He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That one's for the church. That one's for you and me. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That one's for us. That one's for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That one's for us. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That one's for us. And the very last promise that Jesus left us with, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That one's for us. Now, come on, church, even first hour gave me some amens on that. Those promises are for us, and there are so many more. So what is securing your hope in a world gone mad? What's securing your hope? Is it in promises God has actually made to us and to the church, or are you extra sad because you're inappropriately applying promises to today that weren't made and meant for us? Only lament can drive out despair. We have to be honest about our sorrow and secure in our hope if we're going to truly lament and find the strength that Micah had to stand with God in a world gone mad. Because the alternatives are despair or resignation. Only one approach keeps the church faithful to her calling. Pray with me. Father, these words that Micah preached were not preached to us. And yet you preserved them for us so that in them we could see who you are and how you have interacted with, loved, cared for, provided for your chosen covenant people. We confess, Lord, that, that many of us, myself included, are so interested in dictating to you how you need to work in this world that we have, have lost, lost the perspective on how you've promised to work in this world. Help us as a church to refuse despair and resignation because in a healthy way, we can face what is sorrowful and be secure in the hope of who you are and what you have told us you will do. May we rest confidently in the God 
who said he will never leave us or forsake us, but be with us to the end of the age, we pray.